Well, hello, and thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Speak Life podcast. My name is Thomas Thurgood, media producer at Speak Life, and today I'm delighted to bring you this conversation that was recorded at Oak Hill College on Saturday, the 3rd of September. I believe some of our listeners were there in person, so hope you guys enjoyed it. Great to have you along. It's a conversation between uh, Tom Holland, historian who wrote Dominion and co-presenter of the very popular podcast, The Rest is History. So absolute privilege to have him along. Paul van der Klee, who is also known as the pastor to the intellectual dark web. He's responded a lot to Jordan Peterson and the meaning crisis. He has his own YouTube channel, which is well worth checking out. And the third member of this conversation is, of course, Glenn Scrivener from Speak Life. It starts with a short talk by Paul van der Klee, and then the three of them enter the conversation together. And then there are questions from the live audience. So enjoy. Now, what I'm about to tell you, you might be very familiar with because this might be your story. You're home alone, it's at night, you've done pretty well, you've done college or university, you've gotten a good job, perhaps in IT, you pay, you pay your rent, you might have a car, relationship with the family is on again, off again, but it's late at night and you're alone, and you might be drinking, and YouTube is running. And you might have found Jordan Peterson because about four years ago, everybody could find Jordan Peterson on YouTube. And then a crazy pastor from Sacramento with facial hair that seems a little out of control comes up and starts talking. This is how some of you maybe more of you than care to admit, have found me. And we found Jordan Peterson, and then, of course, there was a guy in, they'll probably watch this, so I have to be careful what I say, a guy in South Africa who was also alone, watching YouTube, had found me, and then he said, oh, there's another University of Toronto professor you should listen to, John Verveke, and he has Buddhism and cognitive science, of course, like that, with terrible audio. And you should talk to him. And I talked to him, and he talked about the meaning crisis. Because even though you have a decent job, at least if you're in the States, maybe you have health insurance, and you can pay for your flat, and as compared to a lot of the other people around you, you might be doing better than average financially, and you can buy what you want, a story has been told to you that accumulating a variety of things, status, position, money, goods, would be sufficient to a happy life. A number of years ago, I visited a gator farm. I'm an American, and so we have things called gator farms. <laughs> and there was a giant alligator named Goliath sitting in a warm pool of water. He's just sitting there. And so I asked his feeder, um, does he do anything? And he said, no, I just throw chicken at him, and that's enough. And he lives his life. And when you're sitting at home, 
late in the night, again, probably having drunk a little too much, watching whatever the YouTube algorithm is serving up to you, you know that you are not like Goliath. Dostoevsky, of course, explored this in Notes from the Underground, that he postulated, even if he had all the cakes and all the sex he could want, he might destroy it, and he didn't know why. I listened to half of Jonathan Peugeot talk to Michael Knowles. I'm a little worried about this whole Daily Wire thing, as some of you know. But Jonathan Peugeot was making the point to Michael Knowles that we are very strange creatures because we simply need to care about beauty and truth and goodness. And unlike Goliath sitting in a warm pool of water, having enough to eat, or having all of our creature comforts met is insufficient because as the author of Ecclesiastes notes, at least in the English translations, we have eternity in our hearts. And, and that sounds sort of nice, except if you think about it, eternity is a lot. And it's more than a human heart can hold. What happens when that eternity starts to ache and you begin to imagine that you were made for more than that alligator in that warm pond in a gator form in Florida? That perhaps there is a suchness and a moreness, to use some of these fancy verveki words, there is a suchness and moreness in life that draws you into some place that is beyond your mere creature comforts. So I found Jordan Peterson like many of the rest of you, and I wondered, what is with this Canadian psychologist? Why does he want to talk about the Bible? He understood the strangeness of that, but as a pastor, I thought, why is it that this man can charge 40 bucks a pop and fill a theater in Toronto and ramble for two plus hours, and many of the people in churches, I knew some very good preachers in Toronto, many of the pe people in churches begin to squirm after 20 or 30 minutes and you know are a little cranky if the hour goes over an hour and 15. And I had to ask myself that question because I also have that ache in my heart and even though I'm a Christian minister, even though I'm the son of a Christian minister, even though I'm the grandson of a Christian minister, that ache is in my heart too. And even though I believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, and even though I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, there is a moreness to it that draws me in deeper and further. And so when I saw Jordan Peterson on the internet, I thought, if I can do the Freddie and Paul show, I can probably talk about Jordan Peterson. And I decided to turn the camera on and just share the world, just share with the world what I thought. And I thought maybe a few dozen people would be interested. And to my surprise and a bit of horror, there were more of you. And then people started asking, for my time. 
would you talk? Of course I'll talk. I'm a pastor. That's what I do for a living. Actually, the truth is pastors talk from podiums and pulpits like this, but what we mostly do with people is listen. Because all of you have aches in your hearts. And really, a lot of what you want is for someone to listen. So then people began wanting to talk to me. And they talked and talked and talked. And as a pastor, I would pull their stories out of them. And we would work on their stories a little bit. And I would give them the little blessing of my ear. And I would send them out. And then as some of you mentioned in the little, in the little reception midway through, um, I don't have enough slots for all of you to talk and to share your story with me. And that, for me, is a real source of dissatisfaction. It's also, for me, an indication that um, we will have time later when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun. There's no less days to sing God's praise and to hear your stories than when we first began. So what that has led to is this, which is a strange thing. It's an estuary tour. And John, the guy who asked about herring in the first, he's in the back. If you want to know what estuary is, talk to John Van Donk. Because what I realized was that there's not enough of me to go around. And what I also realized is that although the world is filled with churches, as I heard many of your stories, you said, either I don't dare walk into a church or I'm not exactly sure anybody will care about me in a church. And so I don't know what to do. And so what we've started are estuary groups where all we do is talk. There's, no, there's not necessarily a gospel presentation. There's not necessarily a, a pitch or a come to Jesus moment. All there is is a little group of people that are willing to sit in a circle and have a meaningful, respectful, civilized, not dominated by one person. We have a little protocol to make sure that doesn't happen. But a conversation where you can share your stories, where you can know and be known, and hopefully love and be loved. And as a Christian minister who went for years on a corner with people mostly asking me for a little bit of food help or maybe some maybe $20 to go buy maybe food. <laughs> but we'd go for years or months without anybody wanting to sit down and actually talk about what most mattered to them. I thought that starting a group that would encourage people to imagine that a church might be a place where they could walk in and find a listening ear and a meaningful conversation, not something shoved down your throat, that that might, in fact, be a helpful thing. As a pastor who wants to talk to people about what I believe, it's an extremely helpful thing. And so all of that has brought me here to the meaning crisis. And I, um, I, 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 do, I am worried that Tom Holland's publicist will complain about how often I have used the cover of his book as a thumbnail in my sermons. <laughs> <She went>. <laughs> <laughs> when Glenn said, would you like to do a thing with Tom Holland? I said, absolutely. If you don't listen to The Rest is History, it's my favorite podcast. And it's not just because I'm a fan of history, and it's not just because um, they have interesting speakers. It's because, you know what's at the heart of that podcast? It's friendship. 
And it comes through every episode. Because when it gets right down to it, that ache of eternity in our hearts, friendship is often the next step towards, hopefully, something that goes even deeper. And when it comes to the meaning crisis, I think there is nothing more convincing for people to understand that they are not simply the accumulation of randomly collected atoms that have somehow found themselves into the kind of creature that has a bigger brain than Goliath the alligator in Florida and is therefore disturbed at not being amused or entertained, but that at the heart of us are beings that, in fact, have an appetite for eternity and, well, all around us are similar beings who have a similar appetite. So why don't we go and look for it? So. Uh, Paul, thank you very much um, for that. I, I want to uh, start with Tom. And Tom, pull, pull out from this question whatever you want to pull out, really. Um, uh, Paul mentioned Jordan Peterson a number of times, and so much of the channel and the, the success, or certainly the, the initial bump that your channel got was through, through Jordan Peterson. Um, I've certainly met lots of people who became interested in the Bible and then fascinated by the Bible, and then wanted to find out more and ended up in church. And so he became a gateway drug, really, for, for a lot of people I know in terms of faith. I've met people like that who have found dominion to be, let's not say it's, the, it's not the same pathway into taking Christianity seriously again, um, but people have certainly read your book and come to see that they are believers too in a way that has made faith plausible for them when they thought they were utterly faithless, and yet you point out, well, no, you believe in me too, and you believe in human rights, you believe in all these liberal values, you too are a believer, and it's become plausible for them to take steps of Christian faith. How do you feel uh, representing that kind of figure? Um, am I on? Can you, yeah. yeah. Well, so I, I, wrote, I wrote a book um, about 10 years ago on uh, the origins of Islam, which ended up taking quite a skeptical perspective on um, the stories told by Muslims about Muhammad, about the Quran, about uh, the early history of Islam. And I remember doing a, a book event, and there was a Muslim in the audience who said, um, why, have you, why have you written this book? Uh, you, you know, it, why are you doing this to our beliefs? You, you would never do this to your own beliefs. Why aren't you doing, you know, why are you doing it? And I felt the sting of that uh, charge. Um, but I had also begun to, to, to question my own beliefs because I found the process of questioning Islam. Uh, why, you know, why, why did I think that... Um, the Quran had not come from God because I, I, I didn't believe in God. I, I, I didn't believe that any of this supernatural stuff was possible 
uh, and uh, you know, and if you're writing a history, um, uh, of course you have to explain um, everything in human terms. That was my conviction, um, and and so I wrote it thinking, I guess naively, that I was being neutral. But of course that question from the Muslim in the audience reminded me that I wasn't remotely being neutral, that, that, that my disbelief in the divine origins of the Quran was as much a belief as the Muslim belief that it did come from God. Um, and I, the, the process of writing that book had already started to clarify for me all kinds of senses and suspicions that my, my humanism, my secularism, my liberalism actually were a kind of, you know, they, 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 they were a belief system. And so just as looking at Islam and not accepting that it came from God and therefore had to have come from somewhere else, uh, and the question of where else might it have come from involved asking some, you know, from the Muslim point of view, some quite awkward questions about Jewish or Christian or Zoroastrian or whatever influences on, on, on what becomes Islam. So similarly, I was starting to question the origins of my beliefs and coming to recognize that they had not originated in the Enlightenment because the Enlightenment was too similar to the Reformation. Just as, you know, the Quran is too similar to, um, to Jewish and, 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 and Christian and Zoroastrian writings. The line of descent, the, the process of evolution seemed too evident. And likewise, the Reformation emerges from centuries and centuries before that and starting to recognize that even... Um, that in a way, atheism is a kind of logical endpoint, I think, of Christianity. That Christianity... So Christianity has its roots, obviously, in, in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is all about uh, prophets um, fulminating against people who think that there is the divine in springs or in hills or in trees or whatever, and saying, no, there isn't. And the Christian missionaries, when they... You know, in the early Middle Ages, when they're going into the dripping forests of Saxony and chopping down trees, they're saying to the, the Saxons, these trees are, have nothing. God is manifest all around, but he's not in a tree. You shouldn't worship a tree. Um, and in a sense, in the Reformation, Protestants are applying that lesson to, to the Roman church. Uh, and there's a sense in which atheists now are applying that lesson to the Christian church in toto. They're simply saying, you know, we... You have to bleed everything of, dare I say, the sacral. You have to drain it of uh, anything that might be redolent of, of the divine. Yes. Um, and I, I just came to the conclusion that, that even the most fundamental lack of belief is, is, is merely an expression of Christian belief. Mm -hmm. And I felt both, I felt both kind of helpless, really, in, in, in the way that I feel sometimes helpless when I'm aware of, you know, my the kind of the, uh, the mammalian instincts that reach all the way back to some primordial blob in a Precambrian sea. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no escaping it. Um, so likewise, I feel I'm so much the creature of the inheritance of, of, of Christianity in this country and, and, and before that, that in a way there's no escaping it. But I also kind of felt liberated because I suddenly realized that actually um, the, the, these beliefs you know, in, in the secular or in human rights or whatever, which had actually always seemed to me slightly anemic, mm -hmm. slightly, slightly dull, were actually, if they were rooted in Christian faith, a lot more exciting. Mm -hmm. yes. um, I mean, it didn't, that, that didn't mean I actually literally believed in the resurrection of 
Jesus or angels or anything. But, but it made it much more dramatic to think that this is where it had come from. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, rather than kind of shrinking from, from that origin, I, rather, I have rather embraced it. Yes. So, and, and how do you feel about that? So, I've, I've heard you say that to believe in human rights is as theological as to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And I think you've helped others to take that journey too of thinking there's a whole range of things that I cannot prove mathematically or logically or put into a test tube and yet I take it as read, I live my life on it, I sacrifice for it, I may as well, I may as well believe. Um, how do you feel being a person who has helped others take that journey? I, I, I think on one level I, I feel completely neutral about it because I've written, you know, when you write a book of history, you have to write what you think. Uh, that's what you do. You're not write, so you're not writing it as a philosopher. You're not writing it as a, a Christian apologist. You're not writing it, uh, say, as you wrote your book, as a Christian. You know, I, I, objectively, I, I, I have no view on it. I have simply written what I think is the case. And I strongly and passionately believe that the argument of dominion, that basically, in almost every way, the, the, the culture of the West is saturated with Christian assumptions. I, I, I utterly believe that to be the case. So in that sense, I, I, you know, in the same way that I think that you know, Julius Caesar was assassinated or Napoleon died on St. Helena, you know, that's, these are just historical facts that I, I feel in that sense neutral about. But in the other sense, I, I think that um, I, 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 <laughs> I, I, do, I do quite like kind of prodding the humanists. <laughs> um, and, and I say that as someone who was a humanist myself. So I have the kind of thrill of, of, of you know, apostasy, really. Um, so, you know, but I shouldn't really tell a hall full of Christian ministers that. Okay, but there's some... Um, I, 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 I just love seeing some shrill, dogmatic atheist coming out with Christian stuff and just occasionally pointing it out. That's sort of fun of it. Which is very, very un-Christian thing to do. We would, we would never want to do that. No, I know you would. Have, but, 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 but I can't confess my sins in such an audience. When could I? So, Paul, when, when did you come across Tom's work and how did it strike you as, as you were first hearing his thesis? In certain traditions of the church, there's a real antithesis. You're in or you're out. You're saved or you're lost. And in, for example, my tradition is Dutch Calvinism. You have Agron Kuyper, and he emphasized both the antithesis and also common grace. And what Tom's thesis, he, he's given me actually a number of things that I found extraordinarily helpful. But, but the nexus of it was the fact that I increasingly saw, as I think we get further and further away from modernity, that the assumptions of our world are, have been sort of um, Christian sleepwalking. And so they're having atheist dreams. They're having dreams of, I don't know, world domination through technology and science. They're having all of these dreams, but they're essentially Christian sleepwalking. And, and what's been happening in modernity is that they're bumping into things. And 
if they wake up, they might discover that secular isn't quite the thing they thought it was. I, I was on a podcast in the Netherlands, and it was not a Christian podcast or anything, and the, the academic asked me what I thought of this very secular place called the Netherlands. And I told him, I think it's a much less secular place than California where I live. And he found that shocking because, well, California has megachurches and Christians and all of those things. But I said, you know, the stones are crying out in your streets here. Christianity is built into the buildings. It's built into the structures of your towns. I can't go through the Dutch countryside and not see all of these church spires that connected heaven and earth to the little towns. And then I met someone who said in South Africa they weren't allowed to start a town until they first had a church. And so I told him, even though with all of the yeah, babbling Christians in North America, I think it's more secular than your land. And he was shocked. Mm -hmm. And Tom was the one that opened my eyes to that. Yes. Yes, when you, when you see that secular is one more gift of the Christian revolution to the world, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of eye-opening. Um, Tom, you said um, that atheism might be a logical endpoint to Christianity. If that is so, then I guess mission in the middle of the meaning crisis might be working at odds. You know, if, if, if atheism is the end point of Christianity, then I guess we ought not to be reviving the Christian myths. We ought not to, to be retelling the old, old story. Or how do those things relate? Well, I, I, I think there is a real problem, which I, I've talked about before, which is that basically Christianity has won. Mm. So uh, you saw that manifest in, in the pandemic that people took for granted that the young should make incredible sacrifices for the sake of the old and that the healthy should make incredible sacrifices for the sick and this was taken for granted um, and welfare states exist as a monument to traditions that in Christianity go back to at least the second century AD uh, and, and at the time were utterly radical, unprecedented uh, you know the very concept of a welfare state didn't exist um, and essentially, so much that made the church distinctive has been nationalized. And, and I think that's a massive problem for, for, for churches everywhere. I mean, I, th I, I, I think it was, and again, I, I, I said this during the pandemic, that I, I thought it was, there was a huge missed opportunity for, say, the Church of England, um, who, by and large, the leading figures that I thought in the church uh, were content to play the role of kind of minor functionaries in the welfare state. You know, to tell people to wear masks and wash their hands, which I'm sure was excellent advice and very valuable, but there were lots of other people to say that as well. They, what they were not doing was talking about the book of Job or, uh, you know, the, 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 all the kind of mad, weird mm -hmm. stuff that basically, if, you, you know, if you're a Christian minister, why aren't you talking about this stuff? Yes. Because that's, that's the unique selling point. Yes. Uh, talking about washing hands is not the unique selling point. Yes. Yes. Talking about plates of boils, there you there you're speaking. Because what people wanted to know, wanted to know in, the, in the pandemic was why. You know, what's going on? And it was, it was a why that was more than just, you know, did it escape from a lab or did it come from a bat? Uh, yes. It was more than that. It was kind of what is going on? How do, I, how do we process this? How do we understand that? And I think that, you know, as, as the horsemen of the apocalypse continue to gallop uh, across 
certainly Europe, perhaps less so in, in gas-rich uh, United <laughs> States. But, um, you know, we're facing hard... You know, I, yeah. so, so, so one of the things is, okay, is that um, we are... We, are return, we have returned to a world where winter is something to be dreaded. Mm. We've had that for three years now. So we had two years where we knew that the pandemic was going to be worse in the winter. And that feeling as autumn came, this is going to be, this is going to be grim. Uh, and now we've got, you know, people are going to be cold, people are going to be hungry, people may be dying from cold. Uh, we've got the threat of war on Europe's frontiers. Uh, it's going to probably get worse. That's going to get worse. Um, so people are looking forward with real dread. And I've read over and over again that people are saying, well, w w you know, Christmas is going to be something really special this year. And, I've, you know, it was really striking, both the two years and the pandemic. Christmas really mattered. And I think there was a sense that this was about more than just, um, you know, people want to meet up, although, of course, they did. Uh, people uh, or having presents or all the things that they couldn't have. I think it was about feeling that there is, in, in the heart of winter, in the depth of winter, there is this kind of point of light and hope which was, you know, is drawing on what Christmas would have meant to people in a world without central heating yeah. or a world without germ theory. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that um, it, present there is the sense, we're talking about the meaning. I think the meaning, I think, I think we live in a world where the, the sense of meaning that is imminent, say, in the cycle of the Christian year has been lost. Because we all have central heating, we all have or air conditioning in California, or whatever. You know, you lose the sense of the rhythm of the, of the season. But those great feasts of the church, of which really only Christmas and perhaps Easter remain in the popular consciousness, I, I, I think that, that there is huge scope at the moment as we become more aware of the passing of the seasons, I think, for the church to, to amplify that. Yes. So, you know, the, the festivals... That, that punctuate the harvest, that punctuate, you know, all souls, um, mm. you know, all these kind of other festivals. I, 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 and I, I think the kind of the sense of, of the strange within the passing of the seasons would be, for me, an absolute classic example of where I think the church should be investing. I, I don't know whether that is that too papist an argument. <laughs> um, but, but I think, I mean, I think, I yeah. think you know, the sense that, but, but, because I think the sense that, one of the things that Christianity brings for people is the sense of a communion with people countless generations who've lived before. And one of the things I thought when I went to churches during the pandemic, once we were allowed to go to churches in the pandemic, was I am doing something that people have done in the Spanish flu, in the Great Plague of London, in the Black Death, probably in the Justinianic Plague, who knows. Um, that it, 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 it kind of humbles you before the span of all the, the, the generations that have gone before you. And by humbling you, makes you feel part of a continuum and therefore enables and raises you. Yes. And again, I think that that is something that... I, I just think it's this huge, huge accumulation of spiritual, spiritual wealth that it seems to me the church is not currently using. Yes. Yes. That it's, 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 it's sitting in this incredible property... And it's kind of, kind of using, it's kind of squatting in a, in a, a slightly jerry-built bungalow that's been attached to it. Yes. Well, well, yes. And that may be slightly harsh. But I think go out and explore that incredible, yes. Yes. sprawling, yes. massive, moving edifice yes. that is the accumulated wisdom of, of the church. That was historian Tom Holland speaking about mission in the meaning crisis. 
And there's plenty more where that came from. With the help of Christy Mayer, we'll be diving into this very topic during the Speak Life Vision Evening. And you, yes you, are invited. It's happening from 8 to 9.30pm UK time on Thursday the 20th of October. To sign up, go to speaklife.org.uk forward slash vision. Along with hearing from Christy Mayer and the Speak Life team, you'll get a first sneak peek at our new evangelistic course, and you'll be the first to know about our exciting plans for creative evangelism. This really is a unique opportunity, and it's completely free. Whether you've been following Speak Life for hours or for years, whether you live in England or Djibouti, join us over Zoom as we think about the future of Speak Life. That's Thursday the 20th of October, 8pm. Let's tell the greatest story of all time. The illustration I always use is Christianity is this massive cathedral, but so much mission has been standing outside the cathedral in the sort of tourist information booth with a tiny little pamphlet and with a thumbnail sketch explaining how the building works. And just throw them in the building. So, throw them. so I... Writing Dominion, I, I, I had to kind of read uh, ver- you know, various church fathers or, or preachers or whatever, or poets or whoever, you know, period for period for period for period. And every time I wrote about them, I thought, wow, this is amazing. I, I could happily spend years researching this, but then I have to move on to another one. It, it was so brilliant to have that opportunity. And what, again and again, opened my eyes was the incredible wealth, beauty, sophistication, and a, a, a ability to kind of open my eyes and make my heart sing in a way that I had not anticipated, mm. and which I had simply never heard from anyone involved in, in the church when I had been going to churches. Wow, heartbreaking in so many ways. Um, but it may also be a reflection on, on the inadequacy of my church attendance, which is, I think, much <laughs> likelier. <laughs> but I just, yeah. I just think there is, yeah. you know, there is so much wealth there. Yes. And you're noticing as well, Paul, that um, those who in a meaning crisis are fleeing back to something more substantial tend to be fleeing back to something that is liturgical, that is sacramental, that, that has the, the, the seasons and that, and that kind of thing. Is that your experience? It's been, it's been interesting. I'm a Dutch Calvinist pastor, and all the things that I do on YouTube, people after people you know, come to me and say, Paul, I'm... You know, I'm solidifying my relationships. I'm going to church, and I'm going to be orthodox. And it's like, orthodox? You know how difficult it can be to find an orthodox church? And then once you find one, it's not the seeker-sensitive thing. Um, You're going to maybe ask to be, you know, a catechumen, and you're going to spend a year doing that. No communion for you yet. And at the end of it, um, I talked to Paul Kingsnorth yesterday, and he said, yeah, when I got baptized, it was in a river in the cold. And, um, and so then you're going to church, and you're standing up, and you might be listening to some Romanian or some um, Greek or some even Russian. And so why this church? And I remember Tom an unbelievable talking about the pandemic. And, and I thought two things. I thought, number one, especially for men, they need to be challenged. <laughs> and number two, 
it needs to be strange. <laughs> it, it, and, I, and, and it's a funny point, but it's a serious point because something has to break in order to really pursue a new life. And I think for that reason, for many who are sort of hungering for, for that eternity to be addressed, it's demanding and it's strange. And it's not wash your hands and do a little bit here and that'll be all right. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you, Tom, going to, going to church for some of those first times into the strangeness? Um, I, I remember, um, so I went to uh, St. Bart's, which is, you know, it's, it's the oldest church, it's the only church that, where both the Virgin Mary and Benjamin Franklin have been. Um, <laughs> basically, what's not to like. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, 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 you know, it's a Romanesque church. Uh, it dates back to the 12th century, and I love old things, so mm. that's the huge, I, you know, I'm denying that's a huge part of the appeal for me. But it, it, it um, I, I found, I, I think because I'd been so starved of live entertainment, that I found the sense of it as a great drama incredibly powerful. Yeah. Uh, the, the way in which um, the Bible readings and the structure of the liturgy were telling a story that was a drama that, 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 that everybody could participate in, I found incredibly moving. And again, I think part of the, part of the problem, and you're talking about meaning, I just think there's a meaning overlaid. We have so much information. We have so much entertainment. It's almost impossible these days to be bored because you know, yeah. stimulation is every, every point. And I think one of the things about coming out of the, uh, the, um, out of the pandemic and going to, going to a church like that was, was to realize just how intense the impact of a church service would have been in a world where there basically wasn't anything else to do. Yes. So maybe you just need to shut down the internet. And <laughs> <laughs> that'll that'll work for you. I mean, I so I, 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 I and I think that you know on the subject of meaning, I think that every way. I, so, so I think, and again, I've said this before. I think the 1960s will be seen by historians in the 23rd or 24th centuries as a decade on a par with the 1520s. That it's it's. Uh, it, it, it's a kind of convulsive process of reformation, and it took people several decades before, you know, in the 16th century, before they realized they were living in the Reformation. Uh, and so likewise, I don't think there's a, quite a word for what we've been going through. But clearly, it's, it's, it's a, just as, as the Reformation was a reaction against um, what was seen as a corrupt Roman church, uh, I think a sizable part of the, of, of the Reformation of the 60s was a reaction against what was seen as against Christianity full stop. Um, but the, the, the rhythms and the impulses remain completely Christian. But I th and, and I think the problem is that by jettisoning scripture, by jettisoning the habit of going to church, by jettisoning the rituals, by jettisoning the feast days, by jettisoning um, everything that uh, in the Protestant churches as in the, in, the, in the Catholic church had given structure to belief and a kind of explanation for belief, that has been jettisoned. And, and so as a result, people are, are looking around for other frameworks, other, uh, other ways to kind of, to, to kind of clothes hangers from which to hang the clothes, oh God, my metaphor's going all over the place. Basically, <laughs> they feel things so deeply and they lack 
they lack a structure for these feelings. So I, I think that one of the, one of the structures is a, a, a strong sense that the Nazis are, are incredibly, are the ultimate in evil and a desire to fight them. And you can see that uh, you know, online, if you go and, and make any faintly controversial statement, you'll be accused of being a Nazi within three minutes, everyone knows that. That's an expression of the desire to fight the devil, I think, in a way. Mm -hmm. And you can see it in, in, in the, the language that is used about the war in Ukraine. You know, Putin is Hitler. People find that quite exciting. I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, but they find it, it gives a sense of meaning. It gives a sense of light and, and, and dark, of, of, uh, of truth and falsehood. It, 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 it gives people a sense of meaning. I think it was absolutely manifest in the, uh, the reaction to the, uh, the murder of George Floyd. I think you know, the, 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 the religious manifestations of that were often very, very overt. Uh, but the, you know the, the rituals, the taking of the knee, the, uh, the, 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 the confession. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it was fairly obvious that these were drawing on deep-seated Christian beliefs. But but they were expressive of a desire for for justice, for all kinds of things. You know, to see the last become first, and and all that kind of stuff. I mean, deeply Christian impulses. But because it was without a set ritual, the rituals had to be invented. And I was thinking, I, and I was thinking, because we've just done two podcasts on, thank you so much for, for <laughs> the, very, very grateful, on Tolkien, with all the, the palaver around the, um, the Amazon thing, that I, I think in a way, the success of, of Lord of the Rings is also a kind of manifestation of that, because Tolkien was very, obviously very devout Catholic, it was incredibly important to him, and I think the popularity of Lord of the Rings is expressive of a, a way in which Tolkien is articulating deep, deep Christian myths, and I use the word myth in the Tolkienian sense, I'm not meaning it's false, I'm meaning it's, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's something deeply, deeply felt. Um, and I think the power of that, the reason for its popularity is because it's, our, it, it, it's chiming with these deep-seated cultural Christian echoes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and people can feel them without necessarily kind of buying into you know, all the baggage that comes with institutional Christianity. So, I, 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 and, I, and my feeling is, for what it's worth, is that the church to compete with, you know, all these other traditions that are kind of emerging and, and, and ways for people to, 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 to focus their, these kind of inchoate Christian instincts, that it, it needs to kind of re-glamorize the story. Mm to a degree. It needs to make it strange. It needs to make it... Because it is a very weird story. I mean, it's a very odd story. Um, and I, I think, I think this, the kind of slight sense of embarrassment about the Old Testament, for instance, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, um, kind of slight Marcionite quality, I think, to yes. the modern church. Yes. Uh, and, and I think that that's something that needs to be dealt with. Yes. Because I think, I think the kind of... You know, it's the Silmarillion, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th I think it's all or nothing. I think just pile into all the kind of... All or nothing. Reglamorize the story. Okay, let me ask the same question to you both, and then we'll throw it open to, uh, to the room. But maybe, maybe Tom can go first and then Paul. But the question is, if Christianity has won, and now we have a large welfare state. Now we have, we, now we have agreed that we should lock down to um, sacrifice the strong for the sake of the weak. Um, now that we have a great awakening, we don't need a great awakening, right? What would you, what would you say if, if we have, if atheism is the sort of logical endpoint of the, the, 
the reformatio that's been happening. Um, why go back? Surely, surely this is this is just the the logical endpoints. Do you, well, it, I mean, it may be. Yeah, it may be. Yeah, uh, you know, I think I think that there are you know there are various kind of possibilities, and one is absolutely that uh, Christianity has played its part. It's kind of like the you know the rocket booster got us through the atmosphere, and now liberalism can just you know sail its merry way on through the inky vast vastness of space. So, you know, maybe, maybe, Into oblivion. Yeah, so maybe, so maybe that's fine. Or, yeah. or maybe, uh, you know, as basically Nietzsche argued, you can't really have uh, Christian values without Christian belief. And in the long run, uh, you know, if you're, if you're not watering the soil, the bloom will, will fade. Um, and, and I think, and the implications of that would be very alarming. Mm. Uh, you, you know, and we have, you know, we have seen what that might mean. We've seen what that might mean, because we've, we, we, we've, fascism was all about re the utter rejection, not just of institutional Christianity, as the French Revolution was, and the Russian Revolution, but about the rejection of its core values, so the value that there is no Greek or Jew. And of course, the Nazis completely thought there was differences between the Greek and Jew, and the, and, and, um, and the rejection of the idea that the, that the strong have a duty of care to the weak and that there's value in weakness, the Nazis obviously completely rejected that. And I think the shock and the horror of that was so intense that we, as a society, are now kind of living off the capital of that. But it may be that that will fade, and, and, and the kind of, the, I think the kind of natural instinct of humans, which is to, is to worship the strong, will, will come back in, and particularly if things start to go really, really wrong yeah. with the economy and with, you know, I mean, go wronger. Than they already, than already is. Um, you know, I mean, we may enter very dark times yeah. from a, from a Christian perspective. Yes. Uh, I, but 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 the third option is to make a virtue of the fact that you know the Nietzschean point that you can't really have Christian. You know, that th these values are all fundamentally theological. If you want to believe in human rights, the point will come when, and I think you can see that already happening in India, say in Turkey, where people will turn around and say. What about that? You know, or, or the secular, or anything like that? Yeah. Uh, you know, these are just kind of mad Western imports. Um, and people who want to defend that will have to start looking at the the history, the origins of these things, and that may well lead them to to, to come back to the church. I mean, that's certainly the the path that I've been on. Is you know, I, I, recognizing that these beliefs that are important to me that the rocket fuel for these beliefs is not what I thought they were. Mm -hmm. And I want that rocket fuel, therefore, to be as strong as it possibly can be. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 you know, maybe, I mean, there's always the risk of identifying your own feelings with the broad sweep of history. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to do that. But I think, I, but, but it may well be that, that what I'm going through is something that lots of people are going through because we're all experiencing the same kind of thing. So I, I so maybe it won't, maybe it will, you know, Maybe Christianity will die, as John Lennon said. Uh, maybe it will mutate into something, um, the worship of the strong, uh, the, the validation of differences between, you know, the, the abandonment of the idea that, that all uh, human beings have an equal value. Um, or maybe um, the sense of strain that these values and beliefs are coming under will prompt a return to the source. Yeah. Um, and, and a kind of recognition that actually the the Christian story is the best version of all these other stories that are starting to emerge from it. Yeah.
Thank you. Thank you. Well said. Paul, how would you answer the same question? There are a lot of Viking programs on Netflix. <laughs> and one of the amazing things about so many of these Viking stories is that you have these people with beards that look like mine and a lot more muscles and they come out of the north with better ships and, you know, invade monasteries and the priests die at their hands and on and on and on. But what the Viking stories usually struggle with telling is that in the end, the Vikings get conquered by the religion of the people that they brutalized. How? That's a difficult thing to answer. In the United States, the most Christian group, uh, the most Christian demographic group of American citizens are African Americans, the group of people that I grew up with in Patterson and continue to minister to in Sacramento. And you would imagine that uh, people taken out of their homes in Africa and brought to North America and put into a sort of modern industrial agricultural servitude would hate the religion of their masters. And instead what happened was that they took that religion, gave it a few different twists, and in fact have held it longer and harder than the slavery that was used to enslave them. G.K. Chesterton in his last chapter of The Everlasting Man says, Christianity has died many deaths and it's still here because our God knows the way out of the grave. Now I spend a lot of time with Orthodox people like Jonathan Peugeot and the people who watch my channel and there's a lot of hand-wringing about the Enlightenment. Oh, I wish the Protestant Reformation never would have happened. If the Protestant Reformation hadn't happened, yada, yada. <laughs> I, then they'd say that on YouTube with electricity and all the things that the Enlightenment <laughs> gave us. I don't know. And I, I know that many think that, well, maybe this has sort of played itself out. I don't, I don't think so. And, and I don't think so because there's a way in which, in a variety of things in history, once you see it and it happens, it can't be unseen. So a young woman who was watching my channel, she was in the army, she had a divorce, she had a child, she had a new marriage, went into orthodoxy and... You know, going into orthodoxy, she had to submit, she learned submission, and then the orthodox priest said, we're going to wear masks in church. And she didn't like that. So she decided she wasn't going to go to church, so she sat down on her front lawn, and he, she opened up her orthodox study Bible and realized, I'm still a Protestant. <laughs> in all the work that I'm doing, I, I believe that the harvest teaches the harvesters to gather it. And I, I really don't know, and I know I get criticism from some of my colleagues on this, I really don't know the new shape of Christianity. I think it's telling that a lot of people are looking at orthodoxy, something that won't change. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But yet, they've all passed through the enlightenment and modernity and and. And I tend to think that what we will see will be, again, another 
something we've seen again and again in history where the church seemingly falls apart and many of its riches are lost or forgotten only to have something new, usually struggling, sometimes kind of heretical, usually a little misshapen and lost, but eventually things emerge out of that. And I think we will continue to see it. And all of my work is involved in, for the most part, when I come to an event like this, what I most want to do is listen. Because I do believe that God is at work. And he is using surprising people in surprising ways to continue the story. And the most remarkable thing about Christianity is, I think if you dropped St. Augustine into a deeply reformed North American church that loves to parade his name, it would probably find it unintelligible. And they might find Augustine unintelligible. Yet somehow through this story, we have imagined that there is a thread that somehow connects those Hebrew prophets complaining about gods of stock and stone, and Jesus who says in the Gospel of Mark, it's not what you put into your mouth that makes you unclean, it's what's in your heart. And this continual, these continual tensions that Tom writes about incredibly beautifully in his book Dominion, available at many shops, I guess that's where you buy it here. But those tensions continue to work their way through. And I believe we are, I agree with him 100% about his regard for the importance of the 60s. And I think we will continue to work our way through and the church will once again fall, be refined, restored, and that process will continue. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> there is a case to be made against the sexual revolution, uh, as Louise Perry would say, and uh, her book is available next door as well. Um, a fascinating read. Uh, so I said I was going to throw it open to the floor. Do we have someone to run around with questions? Hands in the air. We've got a mic there and a mic there. Who's got a question? Rory, I see you first. For those playing uh, Rest is History Bingo, we've had Sacral. And for those playing Paul Vanderclay Bingo, we've had Patterson, New Jersey. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And this one is fascinating. Thank you for the discussion this evening. It's been quite good. And this one's for Tom. Um, You've bemoaned a lot about the church being very much silent or giving some hand-washing advice during the pandemic. What charge would you have to this winter to, for the church leaders that isn't just put on an extra little jumper on or maybe install a little bit more insulation? Um. I guess to provide comfort, but not false comfort, that is drawn from the Bible, I guess, and from the great heritage of Christian writers, uh, Christian festivals, um, that have provided comfort to people who have gone through cold winters before. Um, I mean, the, the, the fact that the year has summers and winters and that it's hot and then it's cold is kind of woven into the language of the Bible and it's woven into the, uh, the, the, the pattern of the Christian year. And 
there will be any number of, 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 uh, of government officials and public health officials and all kinds of people like that offering advice on you know, how to cope with fuel bills and, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I understand that the temptation must be, you know, because priests have, have public roles. They, they are people who, who, who can offer advice and help. Uh, and, and so I entirely understand the, the impulse to feel, well, we, that, that's what we should be doing. But there are other people who will be doing that. And I think what, what obviously, what, what Christian priests uniquely can offer is, is a distinctively Christian perspective. And, and that for, is, is what I would be looking for. I would be looking for, you know, what does the Bible say about this? What have the church fathers said about this? What, what have, what, 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 what do we get from the festivals traditionally? What are the, what are the liturgies for the festivals, you know, the festivals? Uh, what, you know, and Christmas would be the obvious, obvious, obvious gateway drug for this. People are in a mood to hear that, the light amid the darkness and all that kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, just the, on the most basic level, thinking about the opening to John's Gospel, I mean, that will have an incredible power this year. Because, normal, you know, I mean, that, that is bread of an age where darkness is properly something to be dreaded in a way that probably for the first time this year, you know, in a long time, you know, it will have an you know, the, the force of that will have an incredible power. So I, I am looking forward to hearing that from, mm. from priests and from church leaders. Offering solace and explanation for what is going on in ways that, that are not to do with the news cycle and not to do with the kind of stuff that, that everyone else is talking about, but, but specifically drawing on that heritage. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, who else has got a question? Um, Hi there, thanks for coming. One, another one for you, Tom. Just picking up on the, the mission of mission and meaning, and the fact that you um, touched on a little bit of your interaction with Muslim people, and someone who every so often goes to Speaker's Corner into racks with Muslims there, I'd be really interested to know from someone, you know, who's a well, recognized historian, if you were to judge, or if you were to give a mark out of, say, 100, for the just the evidence of Jesus Christ, and then if you do the same exercise, you know, say out of 100, for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, if you were to give the mark out of 100. I can give you what? exactly what you want. The evidence for the crucifixion of, of somebody called Jesus is, I would say, 99%. Wow. The evidence for pretty much everything that the, the traditional accounts of, of, of Muhammad say. I think there are elements that clearly are historical, uh, but, but it, it's, I mean, is it, we're not really comparing like with like. Uh, so let's say um, the evidence that Muhammad fled Mecca, so the Hijra, um, I think it's a lot more complicated. I think there was a Hijra, but I don't think he fled from, probably from what's Mecca. Uh, and I think that's been kind of endlessly recycled, and the model of the uh, of the hijra is, you know, it's modelled on Exodus and all kinds of ways like that. So I think that is much, much more complicated. I think I, I, I would say that there is almost no reputable historian who would argue against the fact that that somebody called Jesus was crucified. Then, then what do you say to Muslims who believe that he existed but wasn't? They believe that evidence, 
but they don't believe the evidence of the crucifixion. As a historian, what do you, when you interact, what do you actually... I mean, that seems to me absolutely one of the reasons why I, I do not think that uh, the Quran comes from God, is that it's recycling the Gospel of Basilides. Uh, and I don't think that God would be pumping out Gnostic Gospels from the late second century. <laughs> you know, when even Tacitus knows that, that Jesus was crucified. I mean, so, I mean, I just, I just think it's very bad history, the Quran. I'll be, I'll be quoting on that. Tom Holland says. <laughs> but, but, you know, the, but the Quran isn't, isn't claiming to be history. It's a completely different, you know, it's, you have to... You know, what, what, one of the things about the Gospels is that it's very important to them that they're situated in, the, in a given place and given time. So is it Luke where he, he, he says, you know, it's in the reign of Tiberius, it you know, gives all the, the, the details of, of the Roman apparatus of, of state control in that part of the world to say this is what happened when it did. Uh, and it's shaped by, it seems to me pretty clearly, by classical traditions of historiography. But the Quran is, I mean, the Quran is, is something radically, radically different and weird. And I think it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very different, difficult for, for, for people raised in a kind of a, a, a Christian tradition, I think, to get a handle on what the Quran is about. Come with me next time. <laughs> <laughs> Another question? Um, okay, please. Um, thank you so much for, for this evening. So, I, Tom, you, you said briefly we should just turn off the internet. And so I, I want to sort of... Uh, well, as, as one it, it, rather in the way that the Cardinal said, you know, close, stop the printing press. <laughs> well, I'm one of the IT workers that Paul was talking about earlier. Um, so I want to keep talking about this a little bit. No, but I, I, I want to ask you in the light of, you know, like the, the future of belief and the future of, of meaning and how we get out of the meaning crisis and how that relates to the attention because I think that's what you were talking about really is um, my question is not more concrete than that so I don't know if you can take it from there but do you, do you understand roughly what I'm... I understand entirely what you mean that, that, that we, we, you know, there's too, things are too much, you know, there's too much fun there's too much on, 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 you know, on Netflix or, you know, I mean there's, there's we are never bored. You never hear the still, quite, you know, the quite still voice of contemplation or anything. There is no space for that. And there was briefly in, 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 the, in the pandemic, I think, and coming out of the pandemic, suddenly, you know, with all the theatres shut, the cinemas shut, music venues shut, you could go to church, you could hear music, you pay attention to the inherent drama within the liturgy. And it just seemed intensely exciting. Um, but the question of how a, a, a church can make that seem as exciting as, you know, the return of Game of Thrones. I, I don't, I, I'm not pretending there's an easy answer to that one. Well, just to spin on this a little bit more, you did talk about, the, you know, like unashamedly talking about the old stories and not being ashamed of the Old Testament. And I'm... Getting back to what you said, Paul, about Jordan Peterson, that's exactly what he did, right? And that, that got quite a bit of attention. Anyway, that's just a reflection. So what, what I think is that one of the reasons why I compare the 60s to the 1520s is, is that Protestantism in England, let's say, in the Netherlands, 
became very rapidly hegemonic. And people, people adjusted very, very rapidly to it. And people who had been Catholic priests adjusted to it very rapidly and started talking in, in, in Protestant terms, even perhaps when they weren't aware of it. So even the Council of Trent, you know, the, 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 the smithy of the Counter-Reformation, is unthinkable without the Protestant Reformation. The Catholic Church, is, as it exists today, is as much a product of the Reformation as the Protestant churches are. And I think the risk for, for, the, for, 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 for the Christian churches in the post-60s Western order is that they just they blur in and, and, and become part of the kind of hegemonic ideology, which is liberal, secular, skeptical, progressive. And you know, it's, it's, it's the thought for the day curse. <laughs> you never hear anything on thought for the day that, you know, there's nothing particularly ever anything distinctive about anything that anybody says on thought for the day. <laughs> it's always coming from the same kind of, you know, you know exactly what everybody who goes on thought for the day thinks about pretty much every single issue. And it doesn't matter whether they're Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, Muslim, Buddhist, you, you know that they're all going to be basically articulating the same liberal nostra. Because that's, that is the hegemonic doctrine. Everybody thinks that. And, and, and I think that... Okay, so thought for the day. Thought for the day is, is the God slot on the Radio 4 News that is, I think, part of the charter that, that you have to have someone come on and talk about God for five minutes every, just before the 8 o'clock news. And the BBC users hate this so much that they find people who will say nothing distinctive at all. And, and, and I think it's... I think, I think along with uh, the, the religious studies GCSE, which is what they, you study up until 15 or 16, mm. it's the single fastest motor for de-Christianisation. Thank you. And so I think the danger for, for, for Christian leaders in this country is that they just, they think the way to be popular and the way to get a hearing is to sound like everybody else. But it isn't, because, because why would anyone pay any attention to a bishop who is, who is saying exactly what everybody else is saying? But if a bishop is, is coming out and, and, and banging on about, I don't know, crossing the Red Sea or angels or something, then, then that's really interesting. And to go back to the Tolkien thing and the, you know, the, 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 the huge excitement around this new TV series, people love all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Elves and you know, <laughs> darkness and orcs and things, and, and and it's all drawing on you know it's 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 deeply deeply Christian. If people are into the into into kind of you know the Ersatz version, I think people would be very into into the original version as well. It's I mean it's it is the best story ever told. Christianity is the most popular explanation for why we're on this planet that humanity has ever devised. I mean, whether it's true or not is a different matter. But, but as a matter of historical record, it is the most compelling story. More people have found it thrilling and moving and exciting and believed in it than in any other comparable conglomeration of stories. But it, it, it often seems as though people involved in the churches are, are somehow embarrassed about these stories.
which seems to be insane, because they're free and stuff. Keep going, keep going. It's kind of like, you know, being, uh, you know, running the globe and never putting on Shakespeare. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Um, two more questions. Uh, can we go here and then here? Um, so, John, could you, uh, purple shirt in the middle, it might just be the light. It might be the effulgence of John Lunger's glory. <laughs> there we go. Thanks. Um, I guess this one's for Paul and, and Tom equally, and it's sort of about that whole weirdness thing, and about that whole, um, you know, tell them the real story thing. Um, should the church, and I guess to clarify, I'm one of these weird post-Peterson sort of Christians, where it's like I've gone along the journey, and explaining that journey to anyone normal is completely pointless. Because they haven't watched a thousand hours of Paul van der Klee. And, they, and you know, I might have, but they won't. No matter how many links I send them. <laughs> but I guess the point is, is that because it's so complicated, I think that the thought of the day thing is because if they did start saying all the biblical stuff, there is such a percentage of the population who that's just it for them. They haven't come across the Peterson journey. They haven't had that initial way in. They hear Bible, they hear whatever. The fact that I go to Mass is a sort of odd curiosity to my housemates. They just put it down to the fact that I'm Irish. And it's, Tom's book has been really useful because it's a history book. I've got housemates who listen to the rest is history. I say I'm going to a Tom Holland thing, they've read the book, they think it's interesting. That other way in is so much more difficult to explain. So in a way, Tom, you've sort of become an accidental fifth columnist for, for the Christians on this. And I was wondering, Paul, and I don't know if Tom has anything to add on this, is there a way of distilling the Peterson thing, the Paul van der Klee thing, the whole idea of there being a meaning crisis that is actually digestible in the way that Tom Holland's book is? So my, my travel companion, John Van Damme, is a very interesting critter. He used to be a minister. He'll tell you the story. Amer American evangelicals have, for a very long time, probably learned from you all, but I won't blame you, <laughs> tried to sort of distill and package and put in pill form the gospel so that it can be reliably delivered to thousands of people. There's something deeply idolatrous about that. So I'm a Calvinist, and a lot of people speculate exactly what kind of a Calvinist am I, because a lot of Calvinists say I'm not sufficient, others say I'm too, whatever. <laughs> Many people I know in this strange age have become a Christian through the strangest, weirdest, sometimes supernatural events that whether it's a very strange arrangement of history or one friend of mine dating a Christian girl suddenly on his bed one night God comes upon him another 80 96 year old woman tells me one day she was always she's african-american woman always struggling with the fear of the Lord that I don't know what that means and then God comes to her 
and 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 she just knows it's God and and then a voice says do you fear me Christian conversion is full of weirdness and as a Calvinist I think God gets to have who he wants and I warn Jordan Peterson that it's a very dangerous thing to really try to avoid him because this God who would send Israel back for 40 years in the wilderness um, can go to some pretty alarming lengths to get what he wants. So I think you should um, do what you can to be, um, to, to, to be Jesus' witness, as the first chapter of Acts says, and uh, let God deal with your friends. Thank you. Thank you, and last question, perfect. Um, be interested on the impact of globalization and everything that's sort of been spoken about. I realize we've got three different parts of the world kind of represented on the stage tonight. Um, maybe what sort of opportunities or difficulties in the crisis of meaning that that particularly opens? And I guess maybe a slightly jokey, flippant way of putting it, is the crisis of meaning a crisis of too many people being able to speak English? And what is the effect on that, on sort of the ways that we, we talk about these things? Too many people speaking English. So it's, it's a, are you saying it's, it's an Anglosphere kind of a, an issue? Right. Should we, should we just blame all the Americans for the problem? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, I do think America's gone mad. <laughs> and... <laughs> I think that America is going through one of its periodic religious revivals at the moment. Um, and because America um, is, is bred of British Protestantism, basically, um, we, we are obviously very susceptible to it. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I would include every, everybody in the Anglosphere. Uh, Catholic, all the Orthodox guys who seem to be converting. I mean, everybody. I, I think in that sense, we're all basically Protestant. Uh, and, and we're so shaped by this kind of Anglo-American Protestantism that, of the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and the last kind of great American religious revival was the 50s and 60s with the civil rights movement and, and uh, counterculture and all that kind of stuff. And I think we're going through another kind of massive spasm of it at the moment. And I, 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 I do think that, that anyone who speaks English, particularly who, you know, as a native speaker, is, is very susceptible to it. Um, although it's interesting that, you know, it's kind of the, the Danes and the Dutch, I think, who you know, speak English probably better than we do, uh, who, 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 who also seem very susceptible to it. But, but it's expressing itself in... I, I, I agree. I mean, I think it, 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 it's... So what I found... When, when Dominion is translated and I go to, you know, to France or to the Netherlands or to Spain or whatever, the, the reaction to it is always different because everybody's... Christianity is something universal for, for those countries who've been shaped by the Christian tradition, but it's also very specific. You know, on the most basic level, you know, are you Catholic or Protestant? I mean, on that most basic level. Um, and I would guess that, that if I went, say, to, um, to Africa to talk, you know, to talk about it, my, my, my experience of what they would say would be fundamentally different. 
because the sense I get from Africa, and I, I, I speak from a, a position of someone who basically was running out of time by the time I came to write the chapter on Africa. So it's basically a week's research, week's reading. But the sense I get in Africa is that they have no problem in believing in angels and devils. And you know, the drama of it is much, much more vivid there. And perhaps that in part is because it's so much fresher. It's, it's, it's so much more vivid. It's, it's so much more novel. Whereas here, it's so old. And perhaps everything that I've been talking about, that sense of the tr great tradition, perhaps that's something oppressive as well as, as, as something to be drawn on. And perhaps what you see in Africa now is what Europe was like in the early Middle Ages with the kind of, you know, what you were talking about with the Vikings. Um, the kind of, the, the, the sense of excitement of discovery that is so manifest in, in Christian history in the early Middle Ages. I, I'm slaloming off here in all kinds of directions. I'm not answering your question at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will stand down. Um, yes, basically, it's America's fault. Yes. <laughs> is America going mad? Is it America's fault? Oh, we've always been crazy. <laughs> I worked for six years with, among Haitian, illegal immigrants in the Dominican Republic, and I can't think of a single incident of suicide. I was in Northern Ireland for two days, and I sat next to a woman who was leaving the event we had to go to a funeral for a friend of hers whose son took his life. That is the symptomology of the meaning crisis. I'll, I'll differ with Tom in the sense that when I watch someone with a remote control and Netflix on the smart TV, you know what they do? Click, 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 click. Why is it that there, when I grew up, we had, I was outside of New York City, we had like eight channels to watch. There's eight. <laughs> it was the wealth, this is America, the promise. I'm old too, remember. There's near limitless sources of diversion, and almost everyone that I deal with can't find anything that can hold their interest. In the midst of the most amazing attempt to harvest human attention that this world has ever seen, that says something to me, that people have an understanding that there is meaning beneath all of these stories that the stories are, in a sense, getting in the way of. And part of what happened with the Jordan Peterson thing in, in 2017 and 2018 that I figured out by the end of 2018 was many of the people coming to me had what I call nihilism-induced depression. And it was a strange thing that watching videos of this man rambling about the book of Genesis could relieve their nihilism-induced depression. But then what I also learned was that that medication had a short-term effect and they needed to follow it up with stronger medicine. And that was the strangeness of this story that is beneath all of these other stories that we keep clicking through on Netflix. And so, I don't think it has much to do with the English language. I think it has a lot to do with our power and our affluence. Mm. Well, yeah. that'll change soon. So. <laughs>
sparing an evening and, and uh, being with us. Uh, thank you for your writing, Tom. Thank you for your podcast. I hope everyone is subscribed to uh, The Rest is History and uh, keeping up with you that way. I hope everyone is uh, following Paul Van Der Klee on YouTube and you can get them on, on podcasts as well. Listen, listen along. Um, in a second, we'll uh, give a round of applause to thank uh, Tom and Paul. I want to thank you guys for, for coming along. If you want to keep up with some of the things that we're doing, we'll be sending out an email uh, in the next week and uh, ways that you can follow up with that. Afterwards, we're going to have some more refreshments. I think this, this is like tier one level refreshments. <laughs> we've gone from, yeah, we've, yeah. <laughs> really pushing the boat out. There's even wine, I believe. Okay, how about that? Um, a few of us have to uh, get on to another engagement uh, very shortly, but uh, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, why don't we show our appreciation for well, there we go. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I, I certainly enjoyed it. Tom Holland came out with some absolute zingers, didn't he? Well, if you would like to receive more conversations like this, plenty more where that came from, you can go on our YouTube channel and browse uh, previous discussions we've had with Tom Holland and Paul Vanderclay, and they're also available via the Speak Life podcast. Do subscribe to the Speak Life podcast on your podcatcher of choice if you haven't done so already. That will keep you in the loop, and you can be among the first to listen to these sorts of conversations. It's our great joy and privilege to bring them to you, and we love hearing people's thoughts. You can email info at speaklife.org.uk if you have any questions or comments. Likewise, for our recent uh, videos and podcasts responding to the life and death of Queen Elizabeth II, we would love to hear any thoughts you have on that, uh, any conversations that you've been having with friends about the Queen. Well, that's all from me. God bless and see you soon.